Let's pray together before we turn to God's word this morning. Truly from you and through you and to you are all things. We pray that that would be true over the next minutes as we're gathered together in this room. That all that we hear would be from you. That all things would be through you, our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. And that our response the grace that is poured out upon us by your word and applied by your spirit, that it erupt within us a glory that is to you. Work in our presence, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4, this is the holy and errant word of God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We have a transition in the Sermon on the Mount this morning as we go from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 6. As the Lord was examining the law and inward righteousness there in Matthew chapter 5, now He's going to focus on our outward righteousness. But even as we say that, we want to be very careful. There is not a division in Christ's mind or a division in Christ's teaching between our inward righteousness and our outward righteousness. They go together. They go hand in hand, as we'll see as we go through this passage this morning. The first, as we look at this passage this morning... We want to look at the danger of false righteousness. Uh, Jesus begins our passage with a, with a very strong language. He begins with a warning. He says, beware. If you see a beware sign as you're getting ready to walk on somebody's property, you immediately read, the, thereafter you want to know what to beware of before you keep traversing and so as we head into this passage and as we go through it, Jesus is giving us a warning at the very beginning. Danger is ahead. So we read on to see what our Lord, the great shepherd, the great defender of the church, the great shepherd of the sheep, is warning his people about. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's the warning, the, the danger of false righteousness. Notice that Jesus doesn't warn us not to practice righteousness. No, His disciples do. We, we do righteousness. Neither does He warn us not to practice our righteousness before other people. If He did, that would make very little sense because just in Matthew 5, just before this in verse 16... 
He had said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to do good works before others. But not, Jesus says, in order to be seen by others. The motive is all important in what we do or what we do not do. Jesus will give three illustrations from this one principle here in 6.1 and the following passages. He's going to give three illustrations to flesh out this meaning, verse 1. This morning we're going to look at verses 2 through 4 where he's talking about practicing our righteousness in the context of our giving. And then verses 5 through 15 that we'll look at in a couple of weeks, he will address our praying, and then in verses 16 through 18, he addresses our fasting. And numerous theologians and pastors have over the centuries pointed out that the first has to do with our religion as it interacts with others, the second has to do with our religion as it interacts with God, and the third has to do with our religion as it interacts with ourselves. Each is to be done in true righteousness. Not false righteousness. Jesus is clear in all of his teaching that the Christian's inward righteousness is to manifest itself in our outward righteousness. What we believe is to be shown in what we do. But Jesus is pointing out in this text that he doesn't want us making the mistake of thinking that what we do, what we can do, that we don't have to think about it. That we don't have to take stock in why we do what we do. He's not just concerned with what we do. He wants us to be concerned about why we are doing what we do. The why in our doing is all important. So the first illustration he gives is of almsgiving, verse 2. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Notice that Jesus has the expectation that we will give. He says when you give. Not if you give, but when you give. He says the same thing again in verse 3, but when you give. It's absolutely important to give. We're to give to others and to the work of the kingdom because God is generous with us, so we are to be generous. We are to be giving people because our God is a giving God. In Jesus' day, this would have been no question at all. It would have been the expectation that of the resources you have, of the money that you have, that you would often be giving it away. You would give to the work of the ministry in the temple and you would give to people, the needy. This wasn't just part of religious life, but it was an essential part of living the religious life. And so it is today. We're to give. Not just have good intentions to give. Not just think about giving, but actually give. The refrain echoes throughout the scriptures that God is ple pleased and He's Delighted as his people give. It was a tithe that was instituted to support the work of the ministry. 
But even more than that, God's people have been asked to give sacrificially. They've been asked to give above and beyond their tithe to those around them and to the work of the kingdom. Think of Deuteronomy 14 where we have the tithe commanded. And then in Deuteronomy 15, immediately after the Jews are being instructed about if they have a fellow Jew that has been given to them, that has in a way been enslaved to them to pay a debt, they are told there that as the Lord your God has blessed you, so you shall give to Him. He sets the example before us, and as He has given to us, so we are to give to others. In Proverbs eleven twenty four, we are told one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. In Proverbs 28, 27, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. God's people are to give to God and to those around them liberally. That marks the disciple of Christ. One of the foundational reasons that God encourages us to give and even demands of His people that we give sacrificially is because He knows the, the grip that money and possessions can have upon our hearts knows it, and we know it by experience. Money and possessions can, can wrap up the heart, unlike few other things. As J.C. Ryle once said, he said, how many are rich towards themselves, but poor towards God? Oh, to be safeguarded from this. There's that old saying that, give me your checkbook, or in our day, it would be give me your credit card statement and I'll show you what occupies your heart. But that's not Jesus' primary concern in this text. His primary concern, rather, is about those who would more than readily show you their checkbook or more than readily show you their credit card statement so that you would see how much they've given. And so they might be honored. Giving's not enough. Serving's not enough. Showing up to worship is not enough. Those looking simply to check the box of righteousness and religion will find no satisfaction in Christianity. Because it is not just what we do, but why we do what we do that is important. There's a danger, Jesus is warning of, that, that of false righteousness. Beware that you aren't doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, Jesus is saying. Sound no trumpet, he says, when you give. Again, it's quite an illustration Jesus gives. That of a person who is announcing they're getting ready to give by blowing a trumpet before they give. It's almost comical to think about. Blow a trumpet. Here's Jason's offering for the day. And yet, we may not do it like that, but we do it in other ways, more subtle ways than blowing trumpets. Let it slip here, there, that what a blessing it was to support so and so in their work of ministry. 
We will aim at having that plaque on the wall at that place that we've given to. Or in our day and age, we are addicted to social media and have mastered what has been called the humble brag. I'm so thankful that so-and-so is so thankful for me. Jesus says that is the wrong motive. It's the hypocrite's motive, Jesus says in verse 2, who do their righteousness in synagogues and in the streets so that they may be praised by others. They do all their good works for the world to see on Facebook and Twitter. You know, the synagogue was the center of Jewish life. It was where you went for all of your religious duties. The streets were where all the people were at. This was the thoroughfare. This was where everybody gathered. Jesus says this is where the hypocrites practice their righteousness. Again, Jesus doesn't critique the doing of righteousness in those places, but the doing of righteousness for the praise of others. Such a person, he says, is a hypocrite. Now that's strong language. All of us, as we hear the word hypocrite, we kind of recoil inside. It's not a fun text to read or to preach. And there are a few things that most of us would less like to be called than a hypocrite. Just things in every way. And yet Jesus doesn't mind. He doesn't shy away from using this word. He is concerned with a false righteousness that is no righteousness, that is all but simply hypocrisy. He will use this term in verse 2, in verse 5, and again in verse 16. This is a term that is one of the most illustrative Greek words, I think, in the New Testament. Because it's a word that's taken from the Greek world of the theater. Hippocrates, in the theater of the day, there were often choruses and the chorus would sing something, and then the Hippocrates would answer the chorus. He was, quote, who answered the chorus, end quote. The one who answered the chorus. And this is what the hypocrite does. He answers the chorus. He acts for others. Actors at this time, they seldom, if ever, wore makeup. Instead, they wore masks. They would put a mask on their face to play the part, and Jesus is saying that's what the hypocrite does. The hypocrite looks outwardly righteous, but only looks this way because they have the mask on, so they can receive the praise, they can receive the applause of those who they are performing before. That's the motivation. Give me some applause. Give me some honor. Celebrate me. And we all know that pull. We all know that inward desire. Because we've all wrestled with it and we've all given into it. A desire for the praise of others can dominate like few other desires. There's great danger here, Jesus is warning. A trap that many have fallen into and they have never recovered from. 
and the praise of men, it's like a, a black hole that once it is sought and once you are within its gravitational pull, you just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into it and there is no bottom because there's no satisfaction in it. You just need more. So you go deeper and you need more and so you go deeper. Hypocrite has a religious life. It looks good, but there's in fact no life there at all. It's like a corpse that is prepared for a funeral visitation. Everything is in its place. The skin has been painted. It has color. The clothes are in place. The outward appearance looks real and living, but there is no life within. Others celebrating us is no sign that God celebrates us as well. Motivation matters. God cannot, cannot applaud what the world applauds. God cares not about the quantity of our service if it is not quality service. And doing good deeds for the praise of others fails to pass the quality standards of God. It is a false righteousness. A person living in this way is but a shell of a Christian. And the acts they are doing are but a shell of Christian acts. They are hollow. They are all hollow on the inside. And so Jesus warns us. Oh, be careful. You know, if we had a, a diamond before us, what makes that valuable? It's valuable because it's a diamond. The light shines through it. It's brilliant. It, it, it's valuable because it's a diamond. If it's not a diamond, it's not valuable. There's nothing within it that is of value. Jesus is saying, so it is true with the hypocrite. There's nothing of worth that's found within them. I think it's incredibly instructive that Satan has no problem with the person that professes Christ. He has a problem with the person who sincerely professes Christ. Satan doesn't hate. He doesn't work against the person who shows or makes a show of godliness. He opposes those that are truly godly. Satan had no problem with Balaam being a prophet. He had no problem with Judas being a disciple. In fact, he enjoyed it. He actually welcomed their professions and he welcomed their deeds, but God did not. Practicing righteousness before others in order to be seen by them is no righteousness. It is self-serving and is in fact an unrighteousness. And for this, Jesus says, we will receive no reward from God. None. Notice though that Jesus says there is a reward. He says, truly I say to you, you, they have received their reward. That phrase, have their reward, actually is a commercial term that Jesus is using. It, it could easily be interpreted as a receipt. They have a receipt, and it is written in bold letters on that receipt, paid in full. Well, how have they been paid? What is it that they've received? Jesus says, the praise of men. And that is a poor payment. Because it is vapid and it is fleeting. 
What God thinks of us not only matters more than what men think of us, it is the only thing that matters. So we are to labor for the rewards that are above. We are to set our mind on the things that are above. What this world offers you and I is just too fleeting. You think about the history of the church and you think, and you look through the ages and you think there have been no greater tools in the hands of Satan than, than hypocrites. Those that have made a profession of Christ but they have lived for self and what damage they've done. And that one notoriously scandalous hypocrite can lead many to assume that true Christians are just like that hypocrite. And it leads so many away from the gospel. You may say, but aren't we all hypocrites? Well, I guess it depends what you mean by that. If you mean, are we all sinners? The answer is yes. Do we all at one time or another and from here to there, do we Seek self rather than God. The answer is yes. Do we at times manifest a outward righteousness that is no righteousness at all so that others will applaud us and congratulate us and, and pat us on the back and think well of us? The answer is yes. We all do this. But that does not mean that we are a hypocrite just means that we have acted hypocritically in the moment. And there is grace sufficient for such sin. My friends, God does not look upon the true Christian and the true Christian sin with an eye towards punishment, but rather looks upon them with the eye of mercy. He does not look upon us with revenge in mind, but with pity. He seeks to forgive, and He seeks to heal, and He seeks to restore His children. He loves us, and he, His love covers over a multitude of sins. He takes our hypocritical moments, and He washes them clean. And He forgives us. We all have those hypocritical moments, and we all have those hypocritical moments a lot. His grace is sufficient for the true Christian. For the one who has professed Christ and is seeking Christ and wants to honor Christ, but in this moment has not, or that moment has not, and has played the hypocrite in this moment or that moment, His grace is sufficient and washes clean. As Thomas Watson once referred to it, he said, it is true that there are the seeds of sin in the best, but as it was with leprosy under the law, all who had swellings or spots in the skin of the flesh were not reputed unclean and put out of the camp. So all who had the swellings of hypocrisy in them are not to be judged hypocrites. For these may be the spots of God's children. But that which distinguishes a hypocrite is when hypocrisy is predominant and it is like a spreading fluid in his body. And sin is strong, but God's grace is stronger still. And so we confess. And so we 
look to Christ and look for His grace and we repent. And in the next moment, we seek to live righteously. To do right righteousness. That's the difference between the hypocrite and the true Christian. The true Christian and the hypocrite, they both will do outwardly unrighteous things, making it look like it is righteousness, though. But the hypocrite has no concern for giving glory to Christ. The Christian does. And when they notice that they have done a deed for their own glory rather than the Lord's glory, they confess and they repent. That's the difference. Jesus gives us the heart of right righteousness here. Our second point again in our text as he's addressing our giving. He says in verse 3, he says, but when you give to the needy, again, there's the expectation that we will give. He says, but when you give, notice the contrast here, the contrast of conjunction, but that is in contrast to what you saw in the hypocrite, what you see from the hypocrite, the person who is righteously giving, Jesus says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Again, the contrast. The hypocrite gives for public recognition. The righteous giver gives for God's glory. The hypocrite gives to be noticed. The righteous giver gives in secret. The hypocrite calls attention to himself or herself, whereas the righteous giver desires no such recognition. He says, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's a proverbial way of saying, do it on the down low. Keep it hidden. Now, there may be times that it's impossible for you and I to not give in a public way. There be times that that is required. But the question is, is what is our desire in our giving? That's a good question to ask. What's our desire the motive of the heart is all important. As David prayed in Psalm 51, he said, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Why? Because God demands the heart first. We're all stewards. We're all stewards of what He has given to us. And all that we have has been given to us from Him. Everything. And He has given us everything, and everything that we have has been given to us from Him with a purpose. So that we might use it for His glory and for His praise. You and I are stewards. It's all that we are. Simple stewards. At a meeting here at URC this week, it was a meeting of, of staff and elders and deacons and deaconesses and growth group leaders, and we were talking about this this week. We spent some time thinking together about uh, the resources that we have here at URC. We are an incredibly blessed church. We have so many good, godly saints here. Godly men and women that are serving in all different spheres of life. You have a people that love the Word of God here. You love one another well here. We have a beautiful building. We have finances. We have gifts that are uncountable 
just in this room this morning. We have so many resources. And they've all been given to us by the Lord. Now we have a lot to learn from other godly congregations. We have a lot to learn from other godly leaders. We have a lot of growth that we need to do as a congregation. And so we are always to be marked by humility and we are to remain humble and we're to remain teachable and we're to desire to grow more and more. But having said that, in that humility, we must also recognize that we have a lot to give because we've been given a lot. And we've been given a lot for a purpose. We don't simply exist for ourselves. The resources we have, we have because the Lord has given them to us and we are stewards of them. And we are to be stewards of them well for the sake of others. Not just for ourselves. We're talking about how we have this responsibility uh, in the meeting the other night. And that our first responsibility, our primary responsibility, is to care for the people that are gathered here. But it's not just that. We've been given these gifts and we've been given all of these talents to, to steward for the welfare of the community that's around us, for the other local churches that are here in the Lansing area. We're to steward that for the benefit of the state of Michigan. We're to use that in our presbytery. We're to steward those gifts for the blessing of our denomination that we serve throughout this country, the PCA. And we are to do that for greater evangelicalism in this country. And we are to do that to the very ends of the earth. We're to be globally minded Christians. Stewarding the resources and the gifts that the Lord has given to us for the good of the entire world. And we're attempting to do that. All kinds of exciting ministries happening, all kinds of exciting initiatives on the horizon. But here is what is all important we don't plan to do that. And we don't do that to make a name for URC or to make a name for different staff members or elders or deacons or deaconesses or men or women or people in this congregation. We aren't seeking recognition but from above. We want to serve with the talents He has given to us and reach beyond ourselves, but not so others will recognize us, but so they might recognize Him. That's the goal. And as we seek for this to be true of us as a church, so we seek it as individuals who make up this church. My friends, we labor for an audience of one. We are seeking to give praise and glory to one. We labor for the glory of one. And it is not me. And it is not you. It is not even us. It's Him. Him. 
As we do, there is the promise of reward for righteous giving. Our third point. Promise of reward for righteous giving. In verse 1, we see the negative. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. There's the negative encouragement. Now the positive encouragement in verses 3 through 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And what's the encouragement? This and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's a promise. Promise. He will not miss it. And he rewards those who serve him. We cannot outgive God. We just can't. You can't outgive him. Whatever it is that you surrender for him, whatever it is you sacrifice for him, whatever it is that you give for his glory and his praise. It's not as if you lose it. You can't outgive God. He will be a debtor to no man. You can't outgive him. He rewards those who seek him. In Hebrews 11, that great chapter that has been called the Hall of Fame of Faith, man after man and woman after woman is mentioned. In that chapter, they are all faith-filled, and yet they are all sinners. They are all struggling. They are all weak, and yet they are all attempting to live for the glory of God, man after man, woman after woman. And in verse 6, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists. Well, that makes a lot of sense. If you want to draw near to God in faith, you've got to believe He exists. Then there's a conjunction and. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Isn't that fascinating? Those who would turn to the Lord in faith must believe that He exists and must believe that He rewards those who seek Him. The author of Hebrews ties those two things together. Is there any doubt in your mind that Abel and Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Rahab and Moses are enjoying the rewards of pursuing and honoring and glorifying God even now? Whatever they gave has been surpassed by what they have received. God rewards His people. give you four quick ways to seek such righteous living and combat false righteousness. First and most importantly, tend to your heart. Let's keep a close watch on our hearts. Vigilance is required. Sin will take every opportunity. And know that we are often the most susceptible to sin when doing deeds of righteousness because then our guard has gone down because we're doing a, a, an action that is right. We think little of it. We can do an action that is right and our heart can be all wrong. 
Jesus is saying, be on guard, be aware, be ready, consider yourself and keep looking to him and his grace. Keep reminding yourself that you are in need of his grace every single moment. Jerry Bridges once said, he said, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. So even as we seek about doing righteous things, good things, good deeds, we are in need of His grace. We run to Him and ask for His grace. Second, we aim to live the disciplined and thoughtful life. The Christian life takes effort. We don't like hearing that. It takes self-awareness. It takes thinking. Jesus assumes here that we will live disciplined lives. We will give generously. But he does not assume that it's something that comes easily. That's why he warns us about our approach. We want to live extraordinary and extraordinary ways for the glory of Christ. And that takes effort. It's not legalism. It's not an overemphasis upon the law to say that we are to live disciplined and thoughtful Christian lives. We can't live the Christian life without being disciplined and thoughtful. And so we are to think. We are to think about what we are doing and why we are doing it. Third, read biographies. Look at obituaries and walk cemeteries. Read biographies. It's one of the best spiritual pursuits I know of to combat pride and self-seeking, which we all battle. Biographies help to remind that whenever we think we have progressed to such a degree that we are above others, you read a good biography and you realize that we are but pups compared to those that have come before us. Ian Murray's biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said of Lloyd-Jones, he said, quote, he spoke of the old literature of biographies and revival history as a principal means which preserved him from the danger, from that danger of his head being turned by popularity. Lloyd-Jones himself said, when I read of Whitfield and of other similar men, I felt I had not even started. Amen. Amen. Maybe the most popular preacher of the 20th century. Says, I feel like I hadn't even started. Look at obituaries. Even the longest obituaries scream how short life is. And then you think how long eternity is. Is it worth seeking the praise here and to lose honor there? Is it worth it? Walk through cemeteries. I love to read gravestones and imagine what those people were like that their loved ones try and give some semblance of who they were just with a few carvings on a tombstone. And I think as I walk through a cemetery, a large cemetery, you think as you walk through it, a lot of these people were really important in their day, they were celebrated. They were the kind of person that walked into a room and got noticed. They were the person you wanted to have over for dinner. 
names appeared in newspapers and in headlines. And yet no one remembers them now. Not just that some people don't remember them now. But you walk through the average cemetery and you look at all those tombstones. There is a percentage of them that were very famous in their time, very recognizable in their time, and no one, no one today knows who they are. None. The applause eventually ceases on earth. But the honors received in heaven, they are absolutely eternal. Finally, let us recognize the real issue at hand here. The real cause in our hearts for the praise of men is that the Christian lacks a recognition of who we actually are, what our established identity is. And Jesus gets at that by saying in the very final verse there, he says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you, and your Father will reward you. It's as if he's saying, don't you know? Don't you know who you are? You're children of the Heavenly Father. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ. You don't have to worry about what other men and women worry about. You don't live for the applause of people on earth. You don't live constantly trying to stock up things here on earth. Because you're a pilgrim here. This isn't your home. You have knowledge and you have conviction that there is something that is way beyond what you are experiencing here. Don't you remember who you are? Don't you know who you are? You're children of the Heavenly Father. It is His fame that matters. It is His pleasure that is worth seeking. It's His glory that you are to pursue. And it's His smile that is worth having. And in eternity you will know that. All the recognition, all the praise that this world offers is like a raindrop in the ocean compared to what it shall be to receive just a slight smile from our Father in heaven and hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. So recognize who you are, Jesus is saying. Stop living that confused mind. You're children of a heavenly Father. And live to his praise and to his glory. We do that as a church. We do that as individuals. Let's pray. Lord and our God, oh, how you are worthy of glory and honor and praise. And as your people, we want to give it. 
Where there is hypocrisy in us, we pray, Lord, that you would slay it. We are in need of your grace, for it stains even the best of us in this room. And where there is righteousness, we pray that you would enliven it. And that as we set about laboring in this world, that we would do so in a way that seeks to give you glory and praise more and more as our days pass. Looking forward to that great reward in the skies above. We love you, our Lord and our God. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus, who did all things for the glory of his Father. Amen.